15 years ago, uh, almost to this day, Australia won the most unexpected gold medal in history. Uh, It was truly a historic day. Uh, It has actually become part of Australian sporting folklore. Uh, This week, people were celebrating the 15th anniversary of this particular day. Uh, We have some sound issues. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, uh, of the gold medal that Stephen Bradbury won uh, in the short track ice skating competition in the 2002 uh, Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. Uh, If you remember what happened, uh, the competitors were actually approaching the final bend of the ice rink. Uh, Bradbury was running dead last, but one of the competitors out in front fell over Uh, He literally brought down everyone with him and Stephen Bradbury, to his disbelief, uh, coasted to victory. Uh, Now, last week we began a new series looking at the book of Isaiah. We saw that Isaiah was uh, a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BC. Uh, We also saw that the book of Isaiah is really a single vision uh, that Isaiah has of the city uh, concerning the city of Jerusalem. Uh, but I want to suggest to you this morning that in some small way, the city of Jerusalem would have been looking forward to its own Stephen Bradbury type of moment. Uh, you see, they were God's city. They were full of God's people. They had the temple where they met with God himself. They had the blessing of God. And so the city of Jerusalem, as God's people, looked forward to a day at the end of world history when God would simply knock out all her competitors, all her enemies. On that day, God will come to bring justice and to destroy any king or nation that had oppressed Israel in the past. On that day, God himself would be exalted and his people would be the the last ones standing. Now, uh, the passage that we have before us uh, this morning uh, is really all about this day of God's judgment. Uh, If you have a look uh, at at Isaiah chapter 2 with me, uh, you can see there that uh, it continually speaks about that day or a day that is to come. And so, for example, have have a look with me uh, uh, down towards the bottom of verse 11. Verse 11. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Uh, Verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Verse 17. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day, you see, it's a, it's a phrase that is repeated uh, over and over again. But the great shock in Isaiah's prophecy, as we saw last week, is that this great judgment will fall not only on other nations, but actually on God's city itself. It will fall on Jerusalem for her sins. You see, friends, it's easy to want others to be brought to justice, isn't it? But it gets a bit uncomfortable 
when you learn that God does not show favoritism and he will also judge you and me by the same standards. Uh, Why is there going to be this great day of calamity and judgment for Jerusalem? Uh, Well, you can see there that the thing that God hates in Jerusalem is her arrogance and her self-reliant pride that sees no need for him. Uh, Verse 11, have a look at verse 11. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. Verse 17. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Now, uh, this self-reliant pride in Jerusalem uh, expresses itself in many different ways in this passage. Uh, So, for example, in verse 6, you can see that they are full of things from the east and of fortune-tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. In other words, uh, rather than trusting in God with their future... Well, they sought to find their future by consulting the fortune tellers. Uh, Perhaps a modern-day equivalent would be trusting in star signs and tarot cards and other superstitions that that we have around the place. Uh, In verse 7, we are told that their land is filled with silver and gold. In other words, rather than finding their security in the God who provides for them, Jerusalem were finding their security in their money and their wealth and their possessions. In the second half of verse 7, we are told that their land is filled with horses and there is no end to their chariots. In other words, rather than trusting in God who has promised good to his people, well, they were now starting to put their trust, their national trust, in their military strength and the impressiveness of their armaments. And finally, in verse 7, we are told that their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. You see, uh, this is the ultimate in arrogance and human pride, isn't it? You know, we don't want God telling us what to do. And so what do we do? We take things that human beings have made and we give all our allegiance to those things, deluding ourselves into thinking that these things are God. For at least these idols don't tell us how to live our lives or things that we should do. So we put God in a box and worship a domesticated version of him. You see, friends, uh, self-reliant pride takes many forms, doesn't it? But in the end, they are all a rejection of God. Um, uh, I think uh, the important word in these verses is the word full or filled that you see there. Jerusalem is full of things from the pagan nations to the east, notice. Their land is filled with silver and gold. Their land is filled with horses and chariots. Their land is filled with idols. You see, they have so filled their lives with things that they think will bring them security and meaning and comfort and safety that they have no room left 
for God. In their self-reliant and arrogant pride, they have rejected God. And now, God is going to reject them. What will it be like to be rejected by God? Well, the horrible image we get in this passage is of a people who are desperate to avoid the terror of God and the splendor of his majesty. A splendor that destroys all darkness. Uh, Have a look at uh, verse 10, for example. Verse 10. uh, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Uh, Flip over with me to verse 20. Verse 20. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Uh, I met a man the other day who uh, works with the, the homeless uh, around uh, Sydney. Uh, I asked him, what happens to the homeless when we get baking hot days that reach 40 or 50 degrees? Uh, he said to me, uh, there are actually shelters uh, out in the CBD uh, that... Uh, that get opened up when, a tempera- when the temperature reaches a certain level. Uh, but the only problem is that on weekends, uh, no one is actually working in the city, and so no one actually opens up those shelters. And so the people get desperate. You know, when you have this scorching weather and you don't have shelter, then you try to find whatever little crevice is available in order to protect yourself from the searing heat. That's a little bit like what's going on here, isn't it? The the day of God's judgment has come, and on that day, the proud will be desperate to find shelter from the terror of God, and they will want to hide themselves from his splendor and holiness and majesty. What is even more sad is that on that day, they will find that the things that they had trusted in their whole lives will not be able to help them before the wrath of God. They will simply cast away their idols of money and possessions and human achievements to the moles and to the bats because these things will only weigh them down as they hopelessly try to flee from God. Now, friends, uh, one of the challenges, I think, of reading Old Testament books uh, in general, and Isaiah in particular, is to understand uh, how all this applies to us. Uh, For example, I think it's very easy for for those of us uh, who have tender consciences to think that, you know, I can see human pride in myself, and uh, I hope that's uh, all of us, But we can therefore conclude that perhaps God is going to judge and condemn me. Uh, If this is how you are understanding the passage at the moment and uh, you consider yourself a Christian, then uh, can I really encourage you to do the introduction to the Bible course uh, that we are beginning from next week? Uh, It's really important that we understand how to read the Bible well if we are going to correctly understand 
what it means for us. But uh, let me just say uh, a, a couple of things uh, that, that hopefully will be helpful. Uh, firstly, if you are somebody who has put your trust in Jesus, then Isaiah 2 is actually not a word of judgment or condemnation on your pride and my pride. Uh, yes, you and I deserve God's judgment because of our pride, but in trusting in the death of Jesus, uh, we have found shelter and refuge and safety from God's terrifying judgment. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, uh, the death of Jesus has actually turned away God's anger from us if we trust in him. Secondly, however, uh, I think this is a warning for us to repent of our self-reliant pride, isn't it? Often we do live our lives so filled with money and career and idols of sport and leisure and travel that there is actually no room for God in our lives. I wonder whether that's true for you. And what God teaches us here is that there is nothing more abhorrent to him than human, human pride that rejects him. Do you see it? Uh, let me speak to the parents of children here. Um, I think we live in a culture that has made self-reliant human pride a virtue rather than a vice. Uh, everywhere you turn, you hear the message that you are wonderful and you can achieve anything that you want in life. Uh, that's the message that our children are bombarded with in our schools and in the media day after day after day. And I think it's very easy to teach our children to be proud and to trust in themselves and their own abilities and to achieve the things they want in life, not realising that in the end we are trusting them to be so reliant on their self that they are not reliant on the one who can save them. Are you and I teaching our children to be self-reliant or are we teaching our children to rely on God, even when life takes unexpected twists and turns? Thirdly, uh, I think that the way to read this passage is not to put ourselves in the shoes of Jerusalem who will be condemned, but to put ourselves in the shoes of the survivors uh, who we met last week in chapter 1, verse 9. If you remember, they are the ones who survive uh, this judgment of God. And uh, if you have a look at uh, the passage uh, before us, it is actually the voice of these survivors that we hear calling on the city of Jerusalem to turn back to God before the day of judgment arrives. Now you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 5. Have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, o house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Uh, you can see it again in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, at the end of our passage. Chapter 2, verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. 
for of what account is he? Do you see what they're saying? Stop putting your trust in man. Put your trust in God before that day comes. Now, friends, our situation is similar to these survivors, don't you think? In Jesus, we will survive God's coming day of judgment. But we know that we live in a world that has yet to turn to to Christ and who will one day face God's terrible judgment on the last day. And so if we believe that God is not telling lies and that day is coming, then don't you think we ought to be telling others and warning others of that day. Stop trusting man. Put your trust in God. Uh, Some of you have heard this before, uh, but uh, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, uh, wrote a shocking piece called A Vision for the Lost. Uh, in, this, uh, uh, in this little piece, he expresses bewilderment at those who have been saved by God, but who seem to have no concern that other people are perishing. Uh, it's quite a long quote, but I think it's worth quoting in full. Uh, so I'll just uh, uh, read this quote out for us. If we can just flip to the next slide, Rob. Uh, uh, William Booth writes... I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And out of this dark, angry ocean, a mighty rock rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a great platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking uh, more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there were some who actually even jumped into the water regardless of the consequences of their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most, the sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks reaching a place of safety or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets and classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But 
only a very few of them seem to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me the most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonising care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. You see, friends, there is something seriously wrong for those who have been rescued themselves not to have an agonising concern for the rescue of others, don't you think? Are you one of the ones who are desperately trying to pull the lost from the angry ocean? Or are you and I so filled with the things of this world that we have forgotten the truth of what is actually going on? I've noticed that the ones who are genuinely concerned for the lost will do just about anything to put themselves in a situation where they can tell the gospel to those around them. Is that you? Stop regarding man. Put your trust in God before it is too late. Now, friends, uh, as we've already seen, uh, Isaiah 2 is about the day of judgment on the city of Jerusalem for her arrogant and self-reliant pride. Uh, in fact, chapter 2, verse 6 is the beginning of a unit that uh, stretches all the way to chapter 4, verse 6, and the dominant theme here is the pride of Jerusalem. Uh, we've already seen uh, the pride of the people in general uh, in the city, uh, but in chapter 3, verse 14, you can see there that the leaders of Jerusalem, uh, the elders and the princes, uh, are the ones who are targeted for their pride. Uh, and in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, it is the leading women of Jerusalem who are targeted for their pride. Uh, in particular, notice that it is their clothing and jewellery that is the, the way they express their pride. Uh, and I'm sure that this is a particular temptation for Christian women as well. Uh, I'm told, um, I, I've just heard this, I'm told that whenever women enter a room, uh, the first thing they notice is what other women are wearing. Is that true? Because we like to compare uh, these sorts of things and work out uh, and feel good about ourselves, basically. But friends, when is the day of judgment? When is the day of judgment? Well, the day of judgment for Jerusalem uh, actually fell in history in 701 BC. Uh, that's the year that the nation of Assyria uh, to the north under King Sennacherib 
came and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, in ancient times, enemy armies would come and they would lay siege to, to cities and block any food and water coming into the city. Uh, in other words, they would simply starve the city to death. Uh, I think that's what Isaiah is talking about in chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, For behold, the Lord, of God, uh, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, uh, all support of bread and all supply of water. Uh, but friends, if you have been reading Isaiah carefully, uh, you would have noticed that the day of judgment is also something uh, not that has happened to Jerusalem in 701 BC, but also something that is in the future. In other words, the day of God's judgment is, is, is a day at the end of the world when the nations of the earth will be judged for their pride. Uh, I think uh, chapter 2, verses 12 to 19, uh, is describing this. It is actually, in those verses, the whole earth that falls under the judgment of God. Uh, however, friends, listen to this. Uh, here is the wonderful good news of Isaiah. For Isaiah tells us that the day of God's judgment, on that last day, will not only be a day of terror for those who are condemned by God, but it will actually be a day of... Um, turn over with me uh, to the end of the unit uh, in chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. And see what Isaiah sees about this coming day. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah says, In that day... Notice, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. You see, uh, this is the eternal city of God that will remain after the judgment of God has fallen on the world when Christ returns to judge it. Notice in this view of the city that it is a city full of people who take pride not in themselves, but these are people who take pride in the branch and in the fruit of the land. Uh, the branch uh, we'll see uh, later on uh, is actually speaking about the Messiah. Uh, notice also that this city is full of people who have been washed clean of their filthy pride because their names have been recorded in the book of life. It's not hard to see that these are the people who have been washed clean from their guilt 
by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, notice that in this city, people are not desperately seeking shelter in caves and crevices, trying to uh, run from God and his judgment. But they are sheltered by God himself, who stretches a canopy over the city to protect his people, to protect those who belong to him. Do you see yourself in this city? Do you see yourself as belonging to the eternal city of God? Well, friends, if you and I have abandoned trust in ourselves and have put our trust in the blood of Christ for us to wash us clean from our sin, then we are part of this city. Your name and my name is recorded for life in the eternal city of God. But notice, friends, that the city that we belong to is described as a holy city. Uh, That's why the Apostle Peter, in uh, our New Testament uh, reading this morning, uh, tells us that as we wait for this eternal city, we are to be the ones who are holy and godly in our lives. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since that day of judgment is going to come, uh, what sort of people ought you to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Uh, how are you and I going in our holiness? Uh, I mentioned at our recent weekend away that I think our danger is that so often we satisfy ourselves that we are not too sinful. Is that true? We satisfy ourselves into thinking that we are not too sinful, but we don't think very much about how we can go the other way and grow as much as we can in our holiness as we wait for that great day to come. You know, we are not too sinful, but we do not want to be too generous with our money, often. We are not too sinful, but we are not too serious about growing in our knowledge of God. We are not too sinful, but we're not too bothered that our lives are actually filled with the same things and the same activities that the pagan world around us fill their lives with. And I want to say that those things we, f- we fill our lives with, in the end, will amount to nothing. Your money and my money will be absolutely worthless on that day before God. Your career, your achievements that you pour your energy into will mean absolutely nothing before the judgment of God. Your idols and my idols will only be deaf and dumb on that day as we plead to them to rescue us. So won't you and I turn from these things and be the holy people that God has destined us to be? Let's pray.